Servus from Unique. Hello and welcome back to the High Tech Ventures podcast. It's 2022 now and we are more than happy to continue our conversations with deep tech entrepreneurs, investors and tech transfer specialists in order to understand how we can bring technologies from lab to market. Because we're living in times where new technologies are being developed at an unprecedented pace globally. Whereas the recent decades of entrepreneurship were rather dominated by tech startups and pure digital business models. The next wave of innovation is going to be about science-backed ventures and is going to be characterized by the conversion of different technology fields. This podcast will shed light upon the process from lab to venture and ultimately a scaled business by hosting those having the appropriate expertise. And they will share their exceptional expertise with you and answer the question, why and how high-tech will create true impact for the world. My name is Torsten, and it's my pleasure to host this first episode in 2022 with Professor Dietmar Haarhoff. Hello Dietmar, welcome to the High-Tech Ventures podcast. It's great to have you as a guest. Hi Torsten, great to be with you. Perfect. So you are Professor Dietmar Haarhoff, the director of the Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship research. Can you give us the major building blocks of your career and maybe the things you're most proud of? Because you have done a lot of things. Okay, let me start chronologically. I started out as a mechanical engineer, uh, focusing on robotics, on uh, production technology, uh, but also uh, with quite a bit of uh, um, content and exposure to compiler design, microprocessors and so forth. Uh, which uh, in in the 1980s was an unusual, very unusual uh, background. I have to tell you, it helped me tremendously, and I'm still thankful to my professors who exposed me to computer science at that time. Um, I then worked uh, for almost a year uh, for Fraunhofer in Berlin, uh, and was then very fortunate uh, to uh, get a so-called McCloy scholarship for Harvard, which allowed me to be uh, with a, a very generous stipend to be at Harvard University at the Kennedy School of Government for the next two years. And during that time I also discovered that there was a very interesting research group at MIT looking at innovation, uh, which then became my intellectual home in a sense. Um, I concluded the, the master studies at Harvard, uh, immediately started a PhD program um, at MIT and finalized that in 1991. Uh, I came back to Germany uh, and became, I think, one of the first employees, number three or something like that, at the newly founded Center for European Economic Research in German Zentrum für Europäische Wirtschaftsforschung, which is now uh, one of the major German uh, economics research institutions uh, and which has um, seen tremendous growth in, in the, uh, that time period. I stayed there for seven years. I was active in uh, founding a department that looked at innovation and entrepreneurship. So my topics that you see now in the name of the Max Planck Institute also appeared at that point already. And in 1998, I uh, became professor at the uh, Ludwig Maximilians Universität in their management school, in the Fakultät für Betriebswirtschaftslehre. And uh, I stayed there for 13 years, actually for 14 years before I switched in 2013 uh, here to Max Planck in order to set up a new research department in innovation and entrepreneurship studies. 
Thank you. That gives us a very good picture and we'll come back to your science background in a minute. But before that, there's a quote that I'm always carrying around with me on slides when I'm teaching entrepreneurship, when I'm interacting with research organizations, which says, we forgot the willingness and ability to be independent sometimes after the Grundig-Nixdorf generation. Why did you say that? And what triggered you to think like, well, this generation is gone? Well, I said that obviously because I think it's true. Uh, and I'm, I'm convinced that uh, after that generation, the post-war generation that was still steeped and, and uh, so active, enthusiastic, maybe it had to be uh, given circumstances in entrepreneurship. Uh, so we saw a wave of uh, new companies seeing the light of day after World War II within the first um, 15 years, well into the 1960s. And then entrepreneurship, it didn't cease to exist. We still have it. Uh, and uh, we have wonderful entrepreneurs in that time period. But uh, the numbers went down considerably. And this may have to do, or maybe sociologists have to answer that question, or cultural anthropo anthropologists, uh, that may have to do with uh, um, the, um, the hunger for new stuff, for risky endeavors going down, because the economy in West Germany was doing so well. Uh, we had established industries, cars, chemistry, mechanical engineering, machine tools that did extremely well. We became the uh, equipment factory for the industrialized world, and by the way, later for China as well. And we did that very, very successfully well into the 2000s. So maybe there was a need uh, to think about new technologies, new ventures, while in the United States and in other places, whenever a new uh, solution uh, approach uh, arrived, uh, when microprocessors came, when computer software technology came, when nanotechnology came, we saw relatively rapid entrepreneurial reaction to those opportunities where uh, entrepreneurs picked up the chances and, and did something with it. And we did not see that in Germany. We have not seen that. And that is despite of the fact that we have still have great science. We, in, in all of the fields that I just mentioned, where we didn't have the entrepreneurial reaction, we had great science. And uh, so this is a puzzle. Why isn't the transition from science to entrepreneurial activity, to new firms, to new industries, to new champions, world market leaders, why is that not working as well in Germany as it is in other countries? In the 1950s, we still had that, just as we had it in the 19th century. And so I think it's wrong to say that we don't have it in our DNA, but for some reason it fell asleep or, or it got trained out of us and we have to rediscover it. Although I have to say there is a thriving startup ecosystem now in Germany, but to some extent it's not connected to the scientific community in, in a way that would really support having more startups that are coming from research. And is this something, because you mentioned other countries, is that only a German phenomenon that we, to some extent, there is this sleeping entrepreneurial talent uh, that we need to, to kiss awake again? Or is this something that you see also on a European level? I think I see that also, um, at, at least uh, to some degree, um, in continental Europe. Um, 
obviously not in the UK. The UK has a very fertile entrepreneurial climate, uh, maybe because it is so close to the US economy and um, maybe uh, Anglo-Saxon economics philosophy lends itself more to entrepreneurship in these days than the continental philosophy. Uh, we have well-developed uh, social security systems. Uh, we have well-working, and I mean that in the, in the most positive sense I can say it, in uh, unions. Uh, we think about the balance between risks and benefits of new technologies very carefully, and sometimes I think we uh, overdo the risk side uh, and don't see enough of the benefits. And all of that may be dampening the, the entrepreneurial response to new opportunities. And then, of course, there is this tremendous success that we have had as an export nation, uh, which may be a dampener. And other European, uh, even continental European countries, have not have that. And you can tell that from uh, both the, the number of startups or the, the frequency, relative frequency of startups. You can see that from the number of entrepreneurs or the share of self-employed uh, in Scandinavian economies, uh, in uh, other uh, continental European countries versus Germany. And you can also see that, of course, most importantly, in the venture capital numbers, uh, which um, rose in other European countries, let's take Benelux, let's take uh, Scandinavia, much stronger uh, after 2000, after the uh, um, dot-com uh, bubble crashed, uh, burst, um, than in Germany. We're making inroads. Uh, this is developing very nicely right now. If you look at the last uh, two, three quarters of venture capital in, in Germany, that has been actually quite a success uh, and a very positive development. But we still have gaps uh, in uh, large financing rounds, later stage financing rounds. And we still have tremendous weaknesses in the transfer, as you said, from science into action. And what can we learn from the discussions in the scientific community and results from research about what ingredients do we need in an ecosystem to make that happen, that technologies are transferred from the research organization into thriving ventures or commercial uh, entities in general? I think the first lesson that we have to, have to learn or that we can learn is that um, research and what I call action or the transfer or entrepreneurship uh, are absolutely complementary to each other. They do not stand in each other's way. And that is even true for very fundamental types of research. So one of the um, most inspiring examples of this is Stefan Hell, Nobel laureate, somebody who uh, proved Abbe's principle wrong, somebody who developed a new way of looking into the microstructures of living cells, um, who is uh, a, a researcher interested in fundamental relationships uh, through and through, but at the same time has, with his uh, Aberior uh, GmbH, started a company that has now, I think, uh, 70 employees, that just received by, the way, received, by the way, also the um, uh, transfer prize of the German uh, Physical Society, the Deutsche Physikalische Gemeinschaft, and uh, who's, who combines these two things, the, the, the striving, the, the, the pursuit, curiosity-driven pursuit uh, of fundamental relationships easily uh, with entrepreneurial action. And um, I think that 
that is the case in many fields. So we should stay away from sort of this uh, somewhat um, elitist notion that you can only do one or the other. Mm -hmm. And if you do as a, a scientist in fundamental research also transfer, uh, then you somehow uh, going into lower planes of life or whatever it is. I think that is fundamentally wrong. It sets the wrong, sets, uh, the wrong example, sends the wrong message. And it also deprives us as a society from reaping the benefits from research while other nations are doing that. So we need more of an appreciation when science is translated into something that is applied as a product, as a solution out there in the market. And at the same time, I'm wondering, is this the right way of doing that? Do we need to, to support top-notch scientists to become entrepreneurs or to support entrepreneurship themselves? Or is it more like a combination of entrepreneurial talent and the scientific people bringing them together? So at the end of the day, who triggers and who are the, the best founding teams for such ventures? Um, you're absolutely right. We need to ask that question. I don't mean to promote a model uh, that approaches the scientists and says, you have to change. Not at all. Uh, scientists, even if they are, uh, if they are as close as you can think of uh, at the stereotypical role model of sitting in the ivory tower, if they do a great job, please let them do a great job. Don't hit them with metrics on how many startups they have to found. Uh, I would even say don't hit them with any metrics. Just let them do what they are driven to do and the outcome will be fine. Uh, you're right in saying that there is this other model which essentially um, sees at the side of excellent scientists people who have the entrepreneurial talent, who support that, who glance over their shoulder, see an opportunity, and then with the consent and a bit of intellectual support from the scientist, start a team, get the venture capital, start a company. So uh, the the, the most natural process that I see is that uh, scientists um, open their lab to the extent possible for entrepreneurial talent, that they foster entrepreneurial talent among their doctoral students, their postdoctoral, uh, their, their senior affiliates, and uh, that they open the way for this. And by the way, when you look at um, Nobel laureates in Stanford, you always see that, that they do not become the CEO or uh, the, uh, uh, the COO of a new company. They might be the chief scientific officer. They might be the chief scientific advisor. They are a co-founder and they have shares in the company as they should because it's based on their contribution. But they are not the ones who run the business. That's not their comparative advantage. Absolutely. And um since you mentioned venture capital, to, to what extent do you feel like venture capital is ready for these kind of deep tech startups? We know that venture capital supports and builds up those big ventures from science in the, in the US. But uh, in Europe, how do you feel like, do we have the, the right type of capital? Do we have the right type and skill set inside the venture capital teams to support that the right way? Well, venture capital is not homogeneous. Um, you, you probably find um, all sorts of venture capitalists uh, in Germany, in the United States, in, in, in any country. 
You find some people who wish to have as fast a turnaround of their money into more money as possible, completely impatient, completely uh, non-suited for deep technology or for long-term endeavors. And that's fine. Uh, we have to have those people, but this has nothing to do with venture then. This is almost uh, the search for risk-free investment. You have others uh, that uh, specialize on uh, particular technologies and so forth, and that gives them then a certain flavor. People who uh, invest in biotech obviously have to be much more patient than uh, folks who go into something that is based on social media platforms, uh, software as a service. And again, all of that is fine. Given the strengths that we have in Germany, as you said, in deep technology coming from science, and not so much from big data approaches uh, and from social media, we need a particular brand of venture capitalists who will go along with that orientation, uh, with a deep technological understanding, with appreciation for engineering and for science. And at the same time, since this is a not so short-term gain, some patience. So this is uh, maybe not the classical biotechnology um, um, venture capitalists, but we definitely need pa patience to uh, develop deep technology. I think we have a lot of excellent opportunities for doing that. Uh, we need to master the, the, the human resources in the venture capital community for that. Uh, again, I think that we have made some uh, really strong progress over the past 10 years uh, in that field. Uh, we have uh, partly attracted venture capital talent from other countries who have seen the strength uh, of this field in Germany. So altogether, I'm very positive about that. Uh, but we can do more uh, and doing more means in particular to be uh, able to have better boundary conditions, tax-wise and uh, regulation-wise and so forth, uh, in order to attract that talent. Let's get to the structural uh, setup in a, in a minute. Uh, but before that, I would like to understand your point of view on the public money also supporting this translation from science into new startups. What is the role um, of public money and what, what, what should we avoid um, when it comes to funding that kind of venture through public money? So I think the classical uh, division of labor, if you want, between public and private money is still very much present. We need public money in order to fund uh, basic R&D and even some of the applied R&D. We need public money or we should re revert to public money when it comes to the educational system because it's a very tough look at the example in the United States to have a balanced educational system uh, that uh, is largely based on uh, on private money. I think these are uh, tasks, financing tasks that the state uh, should take should take on. Um, then there is a task for the state in sort of um, starting a new uh, financing mechanism like venture capital. If you go back to the history of Silicon Valley, you find that in the initial years, actually in the initial decades, more than 50% of the money for financing startups came from public sources, be it the military, be it uh, some subsidy schemes, uh, be it subsidy schemes for the venture capitalists. Uh, before this turned into a fully private cycle where even 
the business angel activity or stuff that in Germany we would finance with an exist grant comes out of private pockets. So there is this function that the state has in, in getting something off the ground, in getting it started. By the way, if you look at the Israeli um, example, which nowadays is also largely privately funded, you see that initially with the MUNOS program, for example, uh, what they did is they heavily subsidized the creation of a number of venture capital funds, uh, which essentially got public money. But then they stepped back and said, okay, the investment decisions are made by private folks who have the know-how to do that. The state is not the best decision maker there. Now, in some cases, if you go even a step back, the state sometimes can be a really good decision makers, and those are funding programs like DARPA. Uh, what we are now trying to emulate, in a sense, with the uh, Agentur für Sprunginnovation under uh, Rafael Laguna's leadership. Uh, and I think there the state can have uh, a very, very important function in sort of getting the puzzle pieces off the ground, bringing the scientists, the engineers together um, via a technology challenge, uh, via a competition. Uh, whose autonomous car drives the fastest, and so forth. So there are again areas where the state can be active. But ultimately, of course, when it comes to venture capital, what we would love to have is something that is largely privately financed. So government can still provide funds for syndication and so forth into venture capital. It can via the European Investment Bank, the European Investment Fund, via KfW and so forth, strengthen private funding activities but at some point it needs to be it needs to pull out because we cannot just uh, feed startups from the moment of creation into them be going into their IPO or something like that with state money that would be a complete misunderstanding we haven't fully understood that in Germany yet there's too much there's a lot of uh, state money involved and I think we're at the moment now where we need to pull back in favor of setting incentives for private investors to step in uh, and funding these opportunities. What would be examples for such incentives for the private investors? Well, it, uh, we have a wonderful experiment right now, which is the Zukunftsfonds, the, the, mm -hmm. uh, a fund uh, that is for the first time uh, relatively large. Uh, German government intervention has always been in little chunks. Uh, and this time, we're for, for the first time, we're talking about 10 billion, okay? Uh, and uh, so this is for the uh, an economy uh, as sizable as Germany, uh, a decent amount. It's not a very high amount. It's a decent amount uh, that could really be used to trigger now private investment by putting these monies uh, into um, as, as in a syndic syndicated way or as a risk buffer uh, for de-risking private investments uh, into the respective funds in order to make family offices, for example, in Germany, move into this direction. Uh, they have been relatively reluctant uh, in the past, but I think the time is ripe now. The returns that we see from European venture capital investments have picked up. It's no longer true to say that US investments are uh, are better uh, for the very simple reason that the valuations in the United States are also very high. So it's very expensive to buy into mm -hmm. uh, the startups and that's not yet the case here in Europe. So I think the, the conditions are there 
for shifting with smart incentives like uh, the Zukunftsfonds uh, into a more uh, private capital based modus operandi for the whole venture capital industry. Now that we're coming already towards the more structural um, variables in the system, let's talk about the research organizations because we can think of maybe researchers who have a bigger appreciation for venturing and maybe support that. We can think of maybe a uh, venture capital that is uh, prone to invest into deep tech. We can think of more entrepreneurs that look for uh, the latest science discoveries to build their new ventures based on that. But most of some of those players, and especially the researchers, are mostly part of a system, a research organization. How do you think? Like, um, what are structural challenges here to let tech transfer happen? Actually, I think the structural challenges that we have uh, at the public research organizations, so Helmholtz, Fraunhofer, uh, Leibniz, Max Planck, are very similar to those that we have at the universities, which are also 100% right. privately funded. So I think. Uh, or almost 100% privately funded uh, in, uh, in in Germany, and I think uh, we can. Uh, it, it's it is not unfair to say that uh, again there has been progress. Uh, remember that the German universities only started to manage intellectual property in 2002. Until then, we had a professorial privilege, which allowed professors, even if they had received millions uh, of funding from the German Research Council. So the um, counter, counterpiece to the uh, National Science Foundation in the United States uh, to, to sort of take out patents uh, um, on their own costs, on their own expenses, uh, but also to profit 100% from that. And in 2002, we changed. We, we went over to a system that the United States had already adopted in the 1980s where the universities became the owner of the intellectual property, but also had the obligation of managing that. Our public research organizations were already in this Beidol, if you want, type of regime uh, from the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So they were already in there. And this is, of course, uh, an interesting uh, function because it's so far apart from research, right? In a technology transfer organization that you now need, starting 2002 at the university, starting earlier in the uh, Max Planck, Fraunhofer, Helmholtz, uh, Leibniz organizations, there you're interacting with industry directly. You're talking business. Uh, you're hammering out contracts. And by the way, licensing contracts are some of the most complex contracts that are around. So you need professional know-how. That is difficult to sort of uh, mobilize in a public organization in Germany because there are so many restrictions. So the Besserstellungsverbot uh, forbids you to pay any salary in excess of what could be paid on the public pay scale. And that very often means that you cannot hire people with deep industrial experience. And that unfortunately then, and by the way, that happened in 2002, all of the universities suddenly had to fill their technology transfer offices with personnel. And they looked at the little employment boxes that they had, and the box said BRT, ah, that's the, the salary category that was available. But in the market, you only get somebody who has just finished a diploma or a master's degree and has no industrial experience. And these were the people they hired. And those people ran into a real confrontation with the industrial world. So this is how 
technology transfer cannot work. So we need the experts, we need the industrial know-how at this interface, but we also need, I think, the right incentives. Maximizing the licensing income of a technology transfer house or a technology transfer office of a university is not the, the best possible way of dealing with the problem. You want, in my view, nowadays to see as many startups out there as possible because the taxes that they generate will compensate society for the expenses much more than any licensing income at the university level will ever be able to do. So it's in a sense counterproductive to price some of the startups out of the market with high demands regarding equity shares or licensing income. We should rather set them free, of course at decent rates, there should be uh, some pricing uh, for state aid reasons, for legal reasons and so forth, but we should not make it excessively difficult and we should not maximize licensing returns at the tech, tech, tech transfer office level. I think that's the wrong approach. One of the core KPIs that I also experienced at my time uh, at Fraunhofer and that applies to many research organizations is always the question, how much, how many, many spin-offs do you do? And this is something you also mentioned right now. Do you feel sometimes, or what might be a metric that also accounts for the quality of spin-off, the type of, of spin-off, because there's well, spinning off a company is, in theory, uh, quite easy. You just need an external entity and you need to have, depending on how you define that term, spin-off, you need, you need to have this connection to the research organization. But sometimes I feel we are lacking the global category leader types of spin-offs. And, of course, just asking for many spin-offs uh, doesn't incentivize any organization to get there. Uh, or do you feel like if we would support doing more, um, and this is more a numbers game, and at, at a, as a result, there will be also more kind of unicorn-ish uh, spin-offs coming then from research organizations. What metrics should be applied in an ideal world? Okay, I think before we start thinking about the metrics, let's, let's look back at the process. Um, and the process is a little bit more complicated. Uh, it's not quite as simple, and you know that it's not simple, but... Um, Let's, let's just think about what you really need. I think you first of all need knowledge transfer in the heads of the founders. So it's, it's not as easy as just hiring external, experienced external managers, right, who take on the idea, bring it out and so forth. No, you need people who have been living with this idea, who have been incubating this idea, who have tested knowledge in their heads. And we know that from the United States and from, from many other places, uh, Israel, uh, United Kingdom and so forth, uh, where, where this works out well, that uh, typically the ideas are brought into the early stages of the new startup by some of the people who also invented the idea. Not necessarily the professor, as I said before, right. but the doctoral students, the postdocs and so forth who have uh, an entrepreneurial ambition and want to, and, and want to do that. So you need people who carry it outside. And then, of course, you need the, the financing. In order to find the people, you have to have an entrepreneurial culture. In order to have these people, you need to uh, sort of expose your doctoral students and postdocs to the thought that it might be possible, after all, not to end up as a scientist, but as an entrepreneur. And by the way, we're overproducing scientists in, with our doctoral students and with our postdocs. They cannot all become professors or Nobel laureates. 
So it's completely okay to also look for alternative career opportunities for them. And the entrepreneurial career opportunity is a wonderful one. Okay, So um, in order to get the culture going, we need to have training programs. Uh, we need to have an, a certain openness of talking about these career options. Uh, they should not be squeezed aside, uh, as you sometimes see at some universities or some PROs. Um, so we, uh, we need to have something that exposes people to this, uh, that creates a culture uh, of entrepreneurship and of openness uh, uh, to, towards technology transfer, without making that the dominant sentiment. Research is still the primary task that these institutions have. But that does not stand in the way of opening career opportunities for potential entrepreneurs. So once you have that, then again you can talk about the financial resources you need. We talked about that already. And all of this together uh, creates an ecosystem where we can have successful emergence of startups out of universities and public research organizations. And is this then in turn the core role that you foresee for TTO to build up this awareness, to train researchers, to give them the chance to discover this career path? Or is it beyond that also negotiating the deals, try to structure and maybe to some extent also uh, to build the companies um, from the research organization looking at the portfolio of uh, scientific results and also entrepreneurial talent that might lie within the research organization. So again, in an ideal world, what exactly is the, the value creation role of a TTO for such big research organizations like you, you've mentioned already? Well, um, first of all, let's not forget that TTOs are, of course, also in, in uh, continuously, always in contact with external partners. So it's not just startups. Uh, most of the licensing business is actually with external partners. And there, of course, uh, the, the normal market conditions should, should apply, that's, that's understood. I think the issue is different once they negotiate with their own folks. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that a technology transfer office can, in its position as sort of the, um, the watchdog over the intellectual property of the respective organization or university, at the same time be sort of the good cop that advises the, uh, the startup. I think that there's a basic conflict of interest there that cannot be resolved easily. And by the way, if you look at working examples in the United States, Berkeley, Stanford, and so forth, you see that the entrepreneurship centers who work on the culture, uh, who build the teams, uh, who support uh, entrepreneurs with advice and so forth, are usually separate from the technology transfer office. Now, that still gives the technology transfer office a tremendously important role uh, because it should be supportive of uh, its own founders. And I feel very much um, reminded, and uh, I, was, I was absolutely stunned when I heard this statement for the first time from Lita Nelson, uh, at, uh, who headed the MIT uh, uh, licensing office for many, many years uh, and um, established some really groundbreaking practice there, when she said, look, this is not a game that is about numbers. It's not about licensing income. It's not about the best IPO. This is winning the hearts and minds of your researchers. This is exposing them to the idea that their research can have real-world impact, that it can reduce 
the incidence of death, that it can extend life, that it can create quality of life for people uh, who have tumors or whatever else. I think that is the right mission for a TTO. Now, that is hard to do. I understand that. But uh, coming back to what I said before, I think that there are two basic, basically different functions. One is the support function, the um, encouraging function. Mm -hmm. And that I find very hard to be combined with the function that takes away, that says, uh, give me 10%, mm -hmm. or that says, uh, give me X percent of uh, the equity. And in addition to that, also steep asks for steep uh, royalties and licensing. I love the notion of also creating impact through technology transfer. And do you also see that technology transfer and new technologies might help us globally to solve one of the biggest challenges we are facing right now, which is the climate change challenge? Do, do you see like this is one of the core levers we have to bring those technologies um, into new startups that are working on those big societal and environment, environmental problems? Absolutely. Um, and, and let me say, just on the side, uh, it's, a, it's a broad topic, it's an important topic. Yes. Uh, we should also support uh, social entrepreneurship um, out of technology transfer offices and out of entrepreneurship support organizations at PROs and universities. So it, the, the entrepreneurship thought is independent of whether it's profitable or not, okay, or whether it's commercially oriented or not. Uh, it should be at least as profitable to sustain itself, okay, sure. even for social entrepreneurship. But nonetheless, it doesn't have to be profit maximizing or anything. But uh, in direct response to your question, I think we have seen under COVID-19 conditions already that the responses came from firms that had grown out of startups. That's BioNTech, uh, that's uh, CureVac where it didn't quite work, that is uh, Moderna. That is, uh, other companies, they teamed up with large pharmaceutical ones for distribution and for, uh, for solving other problems. But the solutions came out of the entrepreneurial corner. And I think exactly the same will happen when we try uh, to tackle uh, and to reach our climate goals uh, in uh, decarbonization, uh, sustainability, uh, and in other domains, even in the uh, social dimensions. Uh, I think many of the answers will have to come from startups, will not come from the established companies. So we need startups uh, to solve our problems in the environmental domain just as much as we need them to prevent the next pandemic. That's super encouraging to hear. And so here's the final question. Um, Christmas is close. What is your number one thing on the wish list? What needs to be changed in the German, European, global tech transfer system? in order to, to, to achieve that, what you just mentioned? I think in general, uh, we have to have much more appreciation of innovation, much more appreciation of the benefits, and maybe a little less appreciation of the risks that, that come. We should not always start the discussion with focusing on the risks. That's the first one. The second one is we should make it easier for entrepreneurs uh, to start their uh, ventures, be they profitably or be they profit oriented or not. And that means making it, for example, easy uh, to uh, to register your company so that it doesn't take two months or whatever it takes in Germany in these days. Uh, and um, that um, the uh, the impediments that we have, the uh, 
bureaucratic hurdles that we still put up for entrepreneurs are taken down as much as possible. There will be some left, that's okay, but right now uh, I think we're teaching the wrong thing that everything has to be difficult in order to be feasible. Um, the third one is uh, we can go some way uh, setting up a flourishing, a working, mostly privately financed venture capital cycle. We can still take a few nicks out of the, the, the system here. And the fourth one is uh, we need to work towards a more entrepreneurial culture where entrepreneurs receive high societal acclaim uh, and where even coming out of scientific training and so forth, it is not uh, improbable and certainly not unthinkable to become an entrepreneur. Thank you so much, Dietmar. It was a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you.